You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by the Longform people. Hey. hey Aaron there. Lammer, Max hey Linsky. There. We were just having a discussion of the show's finances. Because <laughs> <laughs> they are. Hence, hence the high energy. Uh, we're, we're, all like, we're all uncomfortable and want to leave. <laughs> uh, do you have any sponsors this week? Well, there's always you skip the guest, but I will. I know, I'll, I'll just I know. go. I figured, I figured that was the natural transition. Well, yeah. The only reason we even have finances is thanks to Tiny Letter from Mailchimp. Uh, it's a simple, powerful way to start an email newsletter. Um, I saw actually saw some of the fine people from Mailchimp at uh, Brooklyn Beta this weekend. They are uh, not only sponsors; they are listeners. That's fantastic. Um, they, they, I always wondered. And, and yeah. you know, and you know what, Aaron? Yeah. They're friends. Yeah, they, no, they are. They're they're good. They're good people. They uh, represent the soul of Atlanta. Don't take that, whatever you mean. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sounds thanks. Like, sounds like the name of like a cheesy cruise ship. <laughs> uh, thanks to Tiny Letter and uh, Melchim. And one more while we're on the uh, in this arena of the uh, sponsorships. It's not a sponsorship, but just a reminder: the Matt Power. Benefit is still going on to raise money oh, yeah. for the Matt Power Literary Award. You can go to longform.org slash Matt Power and donate right now. Evan, you were raised in Atlanta. Did did anyone ever call you the soul of Atlanta? No, I was I'm I'm, not, I'm nothing near the soul of Atlanta. <laughs> Although I I am a person who cannot countenance uh hot Atlanta as a phrase. You don't approve? No. no. <laughs> you don't have that tattoo. I'm, that, I'm at least that close to the soul of Atlanta. <laughs> uh who'd you talk to this week? This week I talked to Wendy McNaughton. Uh, who is uh, an illustrator, a sort of visual storyteller. And uh, she's also a friend of mine. We've worked together on Pop-Up Magazine uh, in the past. And uh, I tried to find some really hard questions to ask her and some really to find other people who really had negative things to say about her. But uh, I failed. <laughs> it's a love fest. <laughs> Everybody loves Wendy and her work, and uh, I feel like it's fair to just acknowledge that and say, I'm one of those people, and that's part of this interview, and just deal with it. If you ask people to um, negative things to say about me, there'd be a line out the door. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to do that interview. <laughs> yeah. that, um, that's the next episode, but this week, here's Evan with Wendy McDonald. So, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's so nice to be here. The reason you're in New York is you had an event last night for yeah. this book that's out, and the book is about tattoos and people's stories about tattoos. I will say that the book is, first of all, wonderful. Second of all, I think a good measure of success for me for this book is that it made me want to get a tattoo. Wow. I don't have one. Evan. I, it made me feel like great. I don't have any stories in my life if I don't have any tattoos or like, if you have a good story that it means you could get a tattoo for it like you should yeah, do that yeah, yeah that's that's fantastic i'm so excited i can't wait i'd be happy to help you get that tattoo right after this podcast <laughs> we can do that in uh, fact we could do it right now <laughs> while the podcast is going on you know i, sh I shouldn't have, i shouldn't have opened with that that's probably a mistake <laughs> um, but you illustrated it so mm -hmm. i'm interested first of all in sort of like how you describe the work that you do well let me first say um that book is called pen and ink tattoos and stories behind them and um, yeah. I did illustrate it and Isaac Fitzgerald who is um, an incredible editor he edited it and he gathered the stories and then uh, I 
hand wrote them out and stuff, and it was really fun. But we had a good time working together because we both like people's stories and like engaging with people and getting people to you know share stuff. And everybody has such good stories. So yeah, the stories in her are amazing. Some of them are very light and funny, and some of them are, I would say, like shocking and heavy, depth. right? Yeah. yeah. So we are really lucky to have people who wanted to share their stuff. But you know, some people get these tattoos and they don't want to share the stories at all. It's like for them, but then some people do want it to start a conversation. Right. So yeah, so it was good. And we both like stories. And I guess that's to answer your question, like a lot of my work is around stories and people's stories. And I think that the people, we mostly hear stories who are like from big personalities who already have a spotlight on them anyway. And I think that everybody carries stories that are just as profound as the ones we hear from like celebrities or, you know, whoever. So I'm interested in the stories of people who don't usually get to tell them. And I think like those are sometimes the most interesting. And I mean, you're the, you are the first illustrator or even anyone approaching an illustrator, uh, photographer, anyone on the visual side, really, besides documentary filmmakers that we've had oh, on the podcast. Wow. And, and an honor. There's a reason. I mean, there's obviously lots of people in that world that we could have on, but there's a reason why I think, because I think of your, you know, I think with the tattoo book, it feels like that could be viewed as like straight up illustration. Like Isaac gathers the stories and then you draw the tattoos with arms and people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but first of all, it sounds like it was more collaborative than that. But second of all, like a lot of what you do it's not illustration, you know, what, what, what do you, do you have know. a word uh, yeah. for it? Like yeah, illustration it, journalism or. Well, uh, illustration is, is the, is, I, so there's two words, illustration. I think that's like my umbrella term. Yeah. And then the other is graphics journalism or graphic journalism or illustrated journalism. Uh-huh. These are all different phrases. And I think that there, some people use the words comics journalism and stuff like that. And yeah. they're all like variations on the theme. Um, but I use this umbrella illustration, which I went to art school and I studied art and illustration was like a a terrible, dirty word that you don't use because it meant that you have no ideas and it meant that you're basically creating like decoration for somebody else's Uh ideas and somebody else's story. And so I never wanted to do that kind of thing. And then it's funny that I've come kind of full circle to this place where now I understand illustration as being a vehicle um, to tell stories in the world. And it's like a vehicle where I can look at something and then represent it visually through like my eyes and my ears and basically illustrate stuff that's out in the real world. So I've kind of like redefined the word illustration for myself and now I use it as umbrella. So I say I do illustration and then if people go, what kind? I go, well, like graphic journalism. So let's, first I want to know some about your your background, like how you you sort of made that journey from uh, art school people looking down on, on illustration to here. I mean, we've sort of work together in a way like we yeah. worked together on pop-up magazine but i don't actually know you went to art school what was your goal going into art school where did you go to art school i went to a place called art center college of design in pasadena which is an incredible school and i went there um as an undergrad and i think i took a couple of years off and worked at a restaurant and decided i did not want to keep working in restaurants so i went to school and i wanted i wanted to make art and i went in drawing and painting i'd always loved drawing and painting i loved figure drawing mostly i started drawing like you know nude classes when i was like 12 years old and it was mm-hmm. like loved it i went into art center really excited to do drawing and painting but then i was, like think within you know like maybe three or four months I was what 19 years old like very impressionable and um, at the time critical theory and like kind of hard cool concept heavy contemporary art was the big thing and that's what my teachers were really into and that's what I was very open to and Mm so I started making terrible terrible conceptual art like really embarrassing performance videos and really bad um yeah conceptual sculpture and installation and it's just like so good that most of that is not on tape and nobody will hopefully ever see that did you feel like you didn't uh looking back you you questioned that whole uh movement or just like you felt like you weren't very good oh I wasn't good at it no I don't question it I think it's fantastic good work like that is great (laughs) but my work was terrible it Uh was really really bad I'm not I don't regret doing any of it you know haven't you done stuff that is like you're like how why the hell did I do that oh and then like 10 years later you say oh yeah I made garbage but like I also had this awesome experience doing these crazy performances in downtown Los Angeles and that was super fun and that was great yeah so when I I stopped drawing and painting for a really really long time huh and How long? Like eight or ten years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I stopped as soon as I was in art school. You weren't even drawing in a book, you know, on the side or anything like that? Just no, I just, it? I totally stopped. The only times that I would do it is I started, 
I went into advertising. And I was not happy in advertising. I ended up working in um, East Africa a bunch doing these uh, communication campaigns for elections and for health education campaigns and things like that. I know it seems like a, mm-hmm. like a little bit of a leap, but I because I could come up with um, these ideas for campaigns and because I knew how to draw, um, I had this weird niche where I would go and I would create campaigns that were um, totally drawn because then they could be understood by people who couldn't read. Uh-huh. Um, so did so you know that when you went I... to Africa that that's what you were going to do or did you go to just do volunteer work and say... No, no, that's why that's that why the... I went. Yeah, yeah, I had never been to the continent before and I was asked to go do the first uh, campaign for the first free and fair democratic elections in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. They um, needed a campaign to educate the population there about how to, how to vote, why to vote, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, whatever... 22 or something and like just young enough to be stupid enough to say sure I can do that <laughs> which I think is like a key a thing right no problem yeah. just you know nothing big it's just you know the first election but I was I was naive enough to think that I could do it and I think that's great I think we get a like a lot of stuff when we're younger when we don't have that fear you know and we actually think that there's really not anything to lose yeah do you still have the, do you have drawings that you did do you have those that those materials yeah that you made did you feel like it had a, the intended impact i mean yeah it did uh, it we created these poster campaigns that went all over the country um there was an incredibly high voter turnout i think it was 94 percent, which is kind of astounding for a voter turnout and it was great to work with people in the community and and i had never worked like interculturally before and i had Never developed a campaign um, that actually, or or done any artwork for that matter, or anything that had a real social impact. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had a positive impact with the work, and you know, in Rwanda, and then it had a huge impact on me. I was like, oh my god, you mean I can actually use these skills that I have to do something that makes a positive impact in people's life as opposed to like you know selling ice cream to people who really shouldn't be eating ice cream. Like that's amazing. And so I came back and I quit my job in advertising completely like just straight up I'm done with this. Did you have well, a I plan? I actually tried to get laid off. I oh. tried it was <laughs> I was it was uh, that dot com crash time uh-huh. and I came back and I was like they will so fire me. They, I, I really want them to fire me and I didn't get fired. Um and I actually I made a t shirt that had a target on it and I walked in front of my boss's office like back and forth <laughs> thinking that that would like give and then he just kind of looked at me and he's like, No, nah, because I just don't think they wanted to give me my what is that called? Severance. Severance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think they were just waiting because they knew I was out any day. And I didn't really have much of a plan. I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. So then what do you, if you have no plan and you want to get into illustration uh, of a new type and now build a career out of it, what do you do? Like, how do you start? So I wasn't drawing for a while after that. One thing happened in between that was pretty significant. I went to graduate school for um, social work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then I ended up um, coming back to the Bay Area and I was working in this job where uh, I got to use all those skills to do these campaigns, but for things that I really believed in. And I thought, you know, that was really great. But you know what? It was still like this office job and I was still working essentially in an advertising structure. And so I was still not very happy. It's like a different message, but the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. And at the time, like I was all about what I uh, thought the impact of my work should be, as opposed to like the importance of the process of the work itself. I Uh didn't get that what we actually do in our jobs, like the the time that we take and how we spend that time and energy really, really matters. (laughs) I thought it was just the outcome. But so I was in that space and I was not that happy and I was going back and forth. I was living in Oakland and I was working in downtown San Francisco and I take I took the um, BART, the subway back and forth. And I would say just like a few months into working in this job, I noticed like all the people sitting around on the subway and they were holding completely still. And they were just like the models that I used to draw when I did figure drawing way back in the day. Uh-huh. And so I started sketching them like I used to sketch. Like I basically hadn't drawn like that in about 10 years. And it was so weird. Like, I don't know if you've had this experience, but like as soon as I started, it was like, oh my God, it was like a muscle memory thing. It's like kind of just came right back. Uh-huh. And it was also this like amazing charge. Like I love, I love doing it. I love it so much. And I started doing it every day. So that meant 20 minutes each way. So that was 40 minutes a day, five days a week. And I would come home at the end of every day, and then I would paint the drawings that I had done. And then I got a scanner, and I started scanning them, and I started putting them on a blog. 
And then the blog got seen by some people. I don't really know how, but I guess that's the way it worked then. So it goes. It, it went. And then somebody uh, offered to buy some, which was like so crazy. Like the as idea, art prints? Yeah. yeah. Like, like just as pieces, these drawings that I had done just for myself, somebody would actually pay me money for that. That was the most bizarre and awesome <laughs> thing ever. And then I got some commissions and then I was like, oh. It, even though I'd been to art school, I'd never really got that I could draw and be paid for that and that that could be my living. It's not conveyed in, uh, in art school? <laughs> not at the, Business, art school is not really good on the business front. I, huh. At the time, it was not. I could see how they would say it's a hard living. Like, be careful getting into this. Don't think you're going to make a, a lot of money. But I would think at somewhere along the line, they would sort of get into the, uh, you know, you can sell this stuff. Uh, yeah. The goal. Yeah, you would I mean, think. Not the goal, but it's... It'll help you. I know. I think maybe they just kind of made grand promises about like someday you could be in a gallery mm. or someday you would be in a show. But then they don't talk about the business behind that and like the exchange of money and how it works as a business. Because I actually think to an art student, it's something like 5% of art students end up actually making it as some kind of a working artist. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. So I think if that was a conversation in school, you'd have a lot less art students. Yeah, a lot of, yeah disappointed people. So when you... That's really interesting. When you were on the BART, did it feel like a secret thing? Like, did people see you drawing them and know that you were doing that? Or did it feel like something you were kind of like capturing this world sort of for yourself? It's a good question. I think I started off with it being a little bit secretive because I, when I'm drawing somebody, I'm staring pretty hard at their <laughs> face very intensely, you know? And um, I, we don't really feel comfortable doing that, I think, in public spaces. Yeah. And so I think I did feel uncomfortable at first. But people don't really notice on the subway. I think everybody, it's one. It's like a coffee shop space where everybody is alone together, mm -hmm. you know, and everybody's got their blinders on. And so people didn't notice very much. But when they did, like I learned how to make them feel comfortable being noticed and the fact that I was drawing them. And actually the social work skills that I got in graduate school totally worked in that context smiling at them or like showing it to them and like saying yes hey, it's, you. it's kind of like assessing how that person like you know is feeling with their body body language and with their response and then you know how to respond to that and how to validate however they're feeling in that moment and uh -huh. then work with that or respect that they don't want to interact you know and they don't want to be drawn and respecting that and i also learned how to draw really really fast mm -hmm. People will jump off the subway at any second, so I have to be able to do it. And I learned to draw without looking down very much because if you are looking up and down and up and down and up and down, which is what you usually do when you draw, that draws a lot of attention to yeah. you. You look kind of like a nodding freak on the subway. <laughs> and so, yeah, I learned these weird skills, and that's how I learned to draw the way that I draw now because I draw mostly from life and mostly in public with people. I can um, see the connection between this beginning and like later stuff that you're doing like Meanwhile in San Francisco and yeah. even the tattoo stuff as well. But at the time, did you think of it as in any way sort of journalistic or like I'm telling the story of Bart over time or was it just sort of like these are portraits of interesting people and I see a lot of interesting people? I think they were more portraits of people and memoir for myself. Mm. It was more, I think, about me. At the time, I was drawing people, but I was also writing text along with them. And the text was uh, little stuff like, you know, I can't believe this is my life. Or like, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, back to the old whatever again. Like just little things that um, were obviously projections of what I was thinking. I would put them onto these people and then I would make a portrait of quote unquote them as in me. Yeah. And when I started wanting to do these longer stories, um, I felt like it, it, I was interested in other in other people's stuff. Um, in other people's stories and using the words that that I would come up with that wasn't the right way to do it. I was interested in using other people's words themselves. So you were sort of projecting what was inside their head by looking at them and then you, you wanted to actually like get what was inside their head. I wanted to get what was inside their head and I thought that I could do that by just like kind of really staring hard at them and understanding them. But like, yeah, what I'm trying to say is that it was it was not ever about them. That was always about me. So in right. a way, like I look at those drawings and those are kind of like uh, a chronicle of my time as a subway rider <laughs> for like four years. And that's like kind of interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but it's 
but it changed when I moved over to the more like journalistic stuff. Certain different different methods and structures were kind of I, I imposed on my work in order to make it less about me and more about the people that I'm looking at. Uh huh. It's kind of like. Uh... Like uh, that everyone in your dream is you. Like yeah. you're looking at the guy in the subway and you're like, well, he's really dreading going to work. And yeah. then it's like, actually, you are dreading to go to work. Yes, it's called a nightmare. <laughs> yes. People discovered it. People bought some some prints. And then in terms of like getting into a publication, was uh, the rumpus the first thing? Or was there were there other things before that? Before the rumpus, I think there was long shot. Oh, long shot. Yeah. Right? But anyway, like, describe what it is. It's amazing. I did two of them. Yeah, it was... Um, Originally called 48 Hour Magazine because it was a magazine made in 48 hours from um, beginning, which would be like sending out to however many people on Twitter or Facebook or whatever what the topic of the magazine was. And then getting all of the submissions, doing all of the art, the layout, the copy checking, editing, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and pushing send to publication all within 48 hours, which yeah. basically meant it was like nobody sleeping. <laughs> Everybody going crazy. Yeah, it was like an overnight thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. It was bonkers. And it was so much fun. And the first, so the, I I think it was, maybe it wasn't the first publication I ever did, but it certainly was, for me, um, a huge launching point. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of like the epicenter of the community that I and I think a lot of other people have. I think we can all kind of trace a lot of the stuff we're doing back to Longshot Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on Twitter at the time, not maybe for, you know, a year or something, but not very active. And I was looking at it and um, maybe it was Sarah or Alexis, Sarah Rich or um, Alexis Madrigal or Matt Honan, the three people who founded it. You know, one of them must have tweeted something about it. I'd never met those guys. And oh, really? yeah, oh. no. And I was, uh, you know, doing these watercolor drawings in my own time, you know, after work. And I said to them, like, I hear you're doing this thing. I, I wrote them an email and said, I, I love to draw and paint. Do you guys need an illustrator? I think it was Sarah Rich who wrote back and said, I mean, we're not quite sure what you mean or like what you think you can do, but if you want to show up at 7 a.m. at Mother Jones' office, like that works. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. Wow. And we sat at the um, table that used to be the Rolling Stone table in Mother Jones' office. Uh-huh. And I sat across from uh, a guy who turned out to be Doug McGray. It's the first time I ever met Doug, um, one of the founders of Pop-Up. And now California know, Sunday. And now magazine. California Sunday. Woohoo! And they handed me a story and said, can you just illustrate this? And I was like, that sounds like fun. And so I got out my paints and my pens and then I started drawing. And I remember like, because it was everybody with their laptops, click, 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 open. And then everybody turned, they're like, what is that? It's paint. Yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> like, like you're, you're do- what are you doing? What do you what, do what, with that? What century are you from? I know it's so weird. It's yeah. so funny because I'm looking at all these, you know, everybody else, and it's mind blowing what everybody else is doing. But it's, it was something that I don't think anybody was used to seeing. And you know, a couple hours went by, and so I finished this artwork, and I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, guys, I got to split. And you know, I handed them this thing, and then it ended up running in the. Uh, magazine, and then we all became fast friends. And I've ended up working with like you know everybody in yeah. that. Yeah, oh, wow. a big community like came the, out of that. Things like the Rumpus series came out of that. Yeah, I started. I was doing um, kind of single pieces, and um, I was pals with the founder of the Rumpus, Stephen Elliott. And he introduced me to Paul Madonna, who's a great artist, who was the comics editor there. And I was talking to Paul about like these kind of single frames, like I was describing before, about how I was drawing people on Bart and I was, you know, putting my thoughts on them. And he's he's the one who said, like, well, why don't you make it into a longer narrative? Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, well, if I want to do that and I want to tell people's stories instead of my own, how can that be? And then we kind of worked out this format mm-hmm. that is about talking to people and writing down everything they say and then doing heavy editing to take their words and my drawings to tell their story. So the the series that was in the rooms was called Meanwhile. Mm-hmm. And then there's a book called Meanwhile in San Francisco, which yeah. if people want to know sort of like what this stuff looks like. They should they should buy that book. I feel like that has that has those stories in it. Yeah. And so what is that process? Like you've got one that is maybe widely known on the internet about the San Francisco Public Library, mm-hmm. which is sort of like the thing that's so fascinating to me about is if you took just the words, like uh, like Wendy without the images, it would be like, okay, yeah. But it's there's something that takes like an everyday thing and makes it much larger. And I'm curious, like, literally, what does the process look like? Like, what do you do when you go into the library? 
I, I, let me say it's nice to hear because like taking something that's like a, that we see every day and then taking it out of its context and then putting it, you know, in a, in a, a lot of white space so that we appreciate it in a new way is like the goal. So yeah. it makes me happy um, to do those stories. I have an idea of a place or a group of people uh, or some community that I don't know anything about and I'm not really a part of and that I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, usually have an idea of what the story is going to be. It's inevitably wrong, but I kind of show up and then I just start hanging out. So at the public library, I showed up and I just started walking around and I started eavesdropping on people's whispered conversations and just standing by it being pretty creepy, you know, like looking over people's shoulders and seeing what they're reading and just trying to get a sense of what goes on there. Uh And I thought I wanted to do a story about like um, the aging community and it wasn't working out at all. I wasn't finding any information on it. And then I met some guy and instead of asking him a pointed question like, tell me about the old people in the library and how that works, I kind of opened the question up and said, tell me about why the library is important to you. And he told me about a woman named Leah who works at the San Francisco Public Library, and she's the first and only social worker mm-hmm. um, at a public library anywhere in the country or the world at that time. And this entire story like unfolded in front of me and I interviewed her and a bunch of other people and I ended up hanging out there for about a month drawing details like everything from the interiors of the bathrooms um, to people who are, you know, reading to people who are working there, um, doing some portraits and gathering all of this text, Mm -hmm. which is mostly from conversations more than it is from interviews. Like I try and be more like ethnographic in it. And like I just kind of hang out and become friends with folks Uh more than um, it being a very, very formal interview process. Right. And do you draw them while you're doing it or do you keep try to keep those separate? Sometimes. Uh Yeah. But mostly I can't I can listen and and draw pretty well, but I can't really have a conversation and draw mm-hmm. at the same time very well. They're two different things. Um, and if I'm doing portraits, I'll take a photo and I'll work from a photo for the really detailed portraits because those take like three or four hours and nobody wants to oh, sit see. still for that. That's like a total pain. Yeah, especially in the San Francisco Public Library. Yeah. I mean, actually, they probably would sit still. And Some this, of them do probably still, the only one yeah. that I could have done that in. Oh, well, maybe next yeah, time. Like, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. True. So then the, the in terms of winnowing that down into the narrative that you ended up with is that something you do or you work with an editor to do i do that you do it yeah so i end up with let's say i don't know 60 drawings or 70 drawings and then i've painted most of them and i take uh pictures for color references if I feel color is important and so and I'll so a lot of them are painted and then I have the text which is basically like scrawled verbatim throughout my notebooks and then I rewrite all of the text onto lined paper or just some paper and then I cut cut out the text into strips into like little chunks of thought uh-huh. and then I take all of the pictures and I spread them on the ground and then um, I take all of the pieces of paper and I match them and then I basically create the whole story laid out in the most old-fashioned editing system wow. you've ever seen in your life on the floor of my studio. That's <laughs> it. And then um, paper clip it all together in order and then sit down at the computer and it usually takes about a solid 12 hours to scan um, all of the artwork with, and then rewrite the text, place the text with the artwork, and then create, um, if it's going online, it's like a continuous read, yeah. you know, a scroll. It's like a single scroll, yeah. Right, or do page by page if it's for print. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's usually an all-nighter. For almost every meanwhile that I've done, there's been an, an uh, all-nighter involved. That is, that's an incredible process. I mean, not least because, I mean, we have a lot of writers on here who write big features for big magazines that probably don't always spend a month reporting, definitely don't always spend a month reporting on those. It's intense, but it's not the only thing I'm doing. Like, are, yeah. are those writers, aren't, are they working well, specifically they on that? a few things going on, but a lot of, you know, someone might drop in somewhere for two weeks and feel like they get really solid reporting and then go write a story. Right. Well, right. I think, yeah, but you guys are probably better at your job than I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally loose with it. This is the thing is I feel like 
I don't know, maybe in the same way that other um, journalists, writers specifically, especially people working with like publications, you know, for the Times or something where you really have to be kind of on the same page with your editor, maybe from the get go about where it's going to go. I'm much more organic. I don't really know what the story is when I go in and that's part of the process. Mm -hmm. And then um, I have a kind of sense when I have enough material, if I then figure out the story and there might be a couple holes I can go back and do like a little bit of fill in and stuff mm-hmm. but it's so it's a lot looser I feel like the processes that's why um, also I call these illustrated documentaries uh-huh. I mean I say I do illustrated journalism but I would call these documentaries because they're a so heavily edited yeah. that it's not um, my voice is hopefully not there, but it absolutely is because I am creating a narrative from all of you know maybe thirty or forty people I spoke with. Yeah, you're making the choices. You're you're showing us a vision of the San Francisco Public Library or Muni or whatever it is, which is totally my my vision, my perspective, my choice, all of that. So it's through through my eyes. I'm doing my best to represent the people who I've spoken with and like what the guts of that is. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely through through my eyes when I see some of your pieces like that are sort of about people in their work they're like stories and portraits of you know the Muni driver is actually one that I really like you're just sort of capturing like what is it like to be this person day to day the person I thought of was like Studs Terkel and the like kind of like working you know and actually even then I looked it up and Harvey Picard did like an illustrated version of that Seriously? book. Seriously? Yeah. I've never seen that. Yeah. That's it incredible. Check it out. Yeah. I mean, Studs is a huge, huge influence completely. I'm kind of curious, like, how you put so much time into this. You have such a uh, process, like a very design process that's fairly time and labor intensive. In terms of making a living doing this type of work, how does that work? <laughs> Right. I don't think it does, really. <laughs> totally. It doesn't. The answer is no. Okay. No. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but it's been nice talking with you. So uh, it's it in itself, that work, I don't think is self-sustainable right now for me. Hopefully, uh-huh. maybe someday it will be. Although I wonder if I would want it to be all I do. I feel like maybe that's not true. Oh, I think that uh, for myself, if... Um, I were to do completely the thing that I love the most all the time, it would turn into my work work, you know, and I'm somebody who always has to be pushing against something a little bit. And so I always kind of want to have some other stuff on the side that is uh, something that I can kind of identify as like, that's the work I have to do so that I can go do this fun stuff on Uh, the side. I never want like the meanwhile work or the storytelling work to be the work. So at least right now, that might change. But so, uh, and also like money-wise, no, I mean, it's not, um, there's, it's been that, that work, the storytelling work has been published in some magazines and as a book um, and online, but it's not something that I think is really sustainable. I have to do other kinds of um, jobs, you know, commercial illustration on the side, a lot of editorial illustration. I have a few other books that are out that are super fun to do, Mm -hmm. um, but they're very different. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've, uh, through a mutual friend, our mutual friend John Muallam. Yeah. I've I've heard rumor that this is referred to as the chicken salad work. The chicken salad. And I've been salad waiting work. for this opportunity to ask you <laughs> why it's called the chicken salad work. Ah, yes, the chicken salad work. I think all of us freelancers might have at some point, if not all points, taken on projects that is something that we do uh, that's fine. We can do it. We're very good at whatever it is, and we can do it without much, you know, thought, mm-hmm. and it pays well. And we might not really tell everybody that we do it. It's not what what we put on the top of our resume. And um, I, for some time, did packaging for chicken salad, chicken sandwiches. Literal literal chicken salad. Yeah. um, I mean, they were healthy and hormone-free, right? (laughs) So uh, if you go into Costco and go down the aisles and keep your eyes open in the chicken area, I think that you'll be able to see some watercolors there. Wow, I like feel like I just came out. <laughs> oh my god! So, so that is how um, that that term came up. I think that everybody who freelances has their chicken salad on the side. Does this mean that people can support your work by buying more Costco chicken salad? 
No. They no, can, buy the books. No, buy, buy the books. books. Think, yeah. They can support the chicken salad. I think that's the other thing, too, is like we all do a bunch of different stuff. But then what we talk about and what we share is ultimately what we end up doing more of. You know what I yeah. mean? Like that's how we get more work is by what people see. Um, so that's something that, we, you know, the chicken salad is on the side. And it's great and it's fantastic. And I, and I worked with wonderful people doing it and it's so great. It's just not the kind of work that I want to be doing. But I think the nice thing is when your chicken salad is actually like in your field. You I mean, you can wait tables and you can do other types of work to make money to freelance. Right. But you're talking about something that still exercises the same there's muscles. a huge debate around yeah. that, though, I feel. like oh, people. So? I totally think so. I think that some people really like it when it is in the field because mm-hmm. they feel like, okay, well, at least um, for like in my circumstance, I'm like, okay, well, at least I'm kind of practicing my brushstrokes or whatever. Like at least I'm doing what I love to do. Um, but then some people are on the other end of the spectrum and they're like, no, I want to keep my art pure. I do not want to like, you know, we only have so much brain space. And so I would rather my brain space like artistically just go towards what I want to be doing and then be getting, I don't know, like material at the diner or just like you know not thinking about it at all yeah i guess either either approach could work yeah i guess so and they're different you know different strokes i also want to talk about this book lost cat which i got a copy of and then like declined to read for some period of time what well because i have a cat i know yeah i needed to be reassured by someone that it had a happy ending before i would start it because i didn't want to read a book about a cat that disappears and never comes back. You said it was a sad cat story. I don't, I don't know. I, you don't know I mean, me at all. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe they... Well, yeah. if you read the book, you weren't actually a cat person at the beginning no. of mm-hmm. the book. But so several things I'm interested in in this book, one of which is that you wrote this uh, with your partner. My, par- my partner wrote it. I illustrated oh, you, it. You yeah, you Caroline Paul. Produced it. We uh, made it. Yeah, we made she's it She's a writer. Yeah. What was that process like? Oh, wow. (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) Most of the time. (laughs) There was no nothing fraught about it at all. I mean, so it was it was definitely a good experience and we are still together. So apparently it it went well. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. We started off. So so Caroline, this is a true story. And um, it happened to Caroline and I. Um, And we started off thinking that it was going to be this kind of 50-50 thing. She was going to write it. I was going to draw it. And we were going to be like church and state. She would go, you know, and write in her place. And she would give the work to me. And then I would draw it. And then it would just be simple. But we quickly learned that that's not how it was going to work at all. Like we're partners and we were partners and we were collaborating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, and also we wanted there to be a real flow between the voice of the writer and the voice of the illustrator because in a lot of ways our voices do come out in, as separate voices in that. Definitely. It, like, so we wanted to be a conversation basically. In order to do that, we really had to work much close, closer together than we expected. And it, it was a really, it was a good process. We had kind of ground rules that like, well, we both respect each other's work a lot. So that's like the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't agree with something, which rarely actually happened, we would voice that and that would be met with some frustration <laughs> and <laughs> discussion. And um, Was there any angst about, it seems like, I mean, it's a personal story. It's a very personal story, both of the two of you and of things that Caroline was going through. And was that a natural thing to do, to sort of tell your own story? Because in, in, in these other stories, you're really capturing someone else's. Mm, I still feel like I'm a little bit more comfortable helping support Caroline's story through my perspective. I see. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what it was definitely from Caroline's perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable being the person who's standing next to the person on stage making the little side jokes like that's, <laughs> And I feel like that's kind of the role that it was. Uh, I was in the book. The drawings were. So in terms of balancing that work with uh, not the sort of like money making work, but like your storytelling work. Yeah. I feel like this may be particularly the things I expose myself to, but I like I would see you in the Times now doing illustrations, and I s- see the books and like the tattoo book out. And I was actually kind of thinking because I was reading this Roxane Gay article that just came out in VQR, which is I was really like captivated by. Where she was part of it, she talks about that like people keep telling her she's having a moment, uh-huh. and she like really kind of like discusses what that means for her. And just because I had read that, I was kind of curious if you feel like you're having a moment or do you feel like your career has sort of like moved into a new phase does it feel that way to you i feel like i've heard that a mm-hmm. lot 
that's kind of the strange thing is I have people who are saying that to me mm-hmm. and I don't have that perspective very much because I really work a lot and I just really like working a lot. Yeah. And um, the work that I do is eventually published and comes out in the world. And sometimes it comes out like a year after I've done the work. So I'm already on to other projects that I'm excited about because that's what I'm into right now. Right. And so um, I feel like right now a lot of things that I did before uh, are are happening and that's so awesome. And I so appreciate that people are receptive to it. And that's so, so amazing and cool and kind of shocking to me. Every time it's always like a little bit of a surprise. But I'm just super psyched if it means that I can focus on the projects that I'm doing right now. It is a funny phenomenon to have something, people get excited about something that you're kind of over. Uh, not over, but like, yeah, no, Yeah, but it's, it's not, not what your... my focus right now. Yeah, yeah like I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this thing I'm starting in January, you know, like that's kind of, but then it's strange to then now be like, I'm super psyched about pen and ink, obviously. And Isaac and I are on the road together this week for it, you know, but it's weird to be talking about something that we worked on for the past, you know, two, two years. Right. Mm -hmm. And now I'm, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird space. And also a thing that kind of freaks me out about it is like, I feel like the whole having a moment thing, it's scary to me to be having a moment because that shines a light also on like not having a moment yeah. like that means there's there's natural arcs to everything and so if things are going really great now like i'm sure at some point they'll be much slower or not as great or whatever and it's kind of weird yeah in right? a way it's like a, it's an it's an ominous it makes it an ominous notion to put it that way like you're having a moment and that moment will be over like we are in yeah. this moment and then it'll be done as opposed to like your work is getting more exposure which i think is more true it's just like the exposure for your work is greater than it was in the past a moment to me also has to do with like an element of like um i don't want to use the word like fame because that's not the situation but it's like a moment of like a spotlight and like excitement around all that kind of stuff um and that has so little to do with the actual making of the work Mm -hmm. which is like kind of slow and um, meaningful and purposeful to me, like in fun process, you know, mm-hmm. it's not about like the publicity of it. It's not about the momentness of it. It's not about the work per se. And so I hope that it's just like you said, like, um, I hope that we all can get that kind of attention and still just keep doing our work. And hopefully the attention will like be positive and, and build if the work keeps being good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I hope. Well, you seem actually genuinely to love the process in a way that a lot of writers we have on kind of, uh, some of them love reporting. Some of them are okay with writing. A lot of them despise writing. Some of them don't like reporting. Like, have you know, even they do it really well. But Did they tell you that? Yeah. I mean, wow. like needing to knock on someone's door. I've done this. Needing to knock on someone's door and sort of sitting in the car outside for like an hour. It doesn't necessarily get any easier for some people. And I'm curious, which of the things do you feel, do you find more fun? Do you find more fun just sort of like talking to people and gathering the stuff or sitting in your own world in your workspace and like mapping the story out and actually painting it i totally need both of those things but what you said about the car i get that that is true okay so now maybe i understand what you say about like hating the writing but they're writers like i love being out and talking to people and that is what gives me like such a charge i mean i'm an extrovert in that way that i'll get energy from being around people Mm -hmm. um and I finding people's stories, it I mean, it gives me like a sense of purpose and place in the world. And it helps me make sense of this crazy fucking shit that is all around us all the time. You know, like seriously, it makes me feel not crazy and connected to people. But if I do that like three days in a row, I can lose my mind and I need to go back and like be alone in my studio. But also it's weird because even though I know that I love that so much, the lead up to that, like in the morning, I can get so scared of going out, even if it's like this, like going to the library or like going to, you know, the dog park or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. an easy place to go. It takes some like guts for some reason to get up and like go into that situation. And I don't think it's about actually being afraid of the people. I think it's afraid of like you know how sometimes we're afraid of the thing that makes us like the happiest? I don't hate to get all existential in this, but like it's maybe it's because you can get lost in that or something like that. But sometimes I'll be a little bit um, hesitant to like go out and do the very thing that like I love to do the most. Uh-huh. And once I'm there, I'm totally happy. 
that's one great thing is that I have this sketchbook and like a smile on my face and people that's pretty disarming I feel like an artist is very different than a journalist and I approach people as an artist and then talk about what I do in the context of journalism I love the stories but I also love these sort of like one-off things I actually wrote a bunch of them down like there's one called universal laws of safe distance which is sort of like you know like uh where people are in your orbit and it's almost like a I mean I don't know if this is like be belittling it to say this but it's almost like a far side cartoon it's almost like a a single belittling you just you just compared my work to Gary are you kidding me I don't know know. that he's the hero I don't know what happens in the comics world but I just mean like they're they're sing they're single uh, ideas they're more like like a comic than like a story in some ways they could be considered comics I call them illustrations or whatever you know but it's so a lot of that I work with Caroline still ongoing we do this um, series together and she writes an essay and I illustrate it and mm-hmm. I usually just have like a subject matter and you give me a topic and I enjoy making like diagrams and stuff like that about it I think of diagrams as a way to like make sense of completely ridiculous stuff like and simplify it to a point that a very small child could understand like should i use an emoji that's another one that yeah I really like. yeah that's exactly kind of like flowchart approach to 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 the everyday struggles decisions. that yeah. we all face the grand questions of the universe and do you have people who uh, try to commission you to do those like do a flowchart about something and you i mean could you do that on on command or does it have to sort of come from ideas that you have I have been asked to do commissions, everything from like companies to actually people being like, I'm getting married and I would like to make a flow chart for my wedding invitation. Oh, wow. Could you could you do that? And so, I mean, yes, I probably could. Would that be a good idea in the universe? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) You know, that might not be what's best for you. And I hate to make that decision for you, but I'm not going to do your wedding invitation. (laughs) You know, that yeah, there are some commissions that are done and they're always fun to do. Some are better than others. Your style, to me, is pretty recognizable. Like, when I see one of your pieces, I know that it's you. I'm curious how intentional that is. Like, do you do you just always have a drawing style and everything you do just is in that drawing style? It's very natural, including, like, your handwriting, which is on, which is also distinctive, and it's on a lot, if not all of the pieces, most of the pieces. Did you try to develop a style that felt unique, and did it change over time, or is it just sort of it is what it's always been? I wonder if this is the same for writers as it is for drawers. I remember when I was starting to draw, um, I would copy the masters. That's mm-hmm. what we all do in mm-hmm. art school is we literally make tens and hundreds of copies of da Vinci's and Michelangelo's and stuff. And then we do our own drawing and we kind of are copying other people, not deliberately, and our stuff will look like other people's. And when I was doing that, I always wonder, like, how am I going to come up with my own style? Because everything I did always looked like other people's. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was drawing on Bart that I just was drawing without much thought and intention and drawing regularly so often that I think that when you do it enough, you have no choice but to just draw the way you draw. Mm -hmm. It's almost like handwriting. If you are writing with your hand every day, you develop a handwriting, you know, and then that becomes yours. And if somebody asked you, how did you develop your style of handwriting? You did it by writing (laughs) every day. And I have different handwritings, though, like, yes, so I write a lot of text in my work. Yeah. And um, if if I'm going to like make a to-do list really fast, it probably won't look quite as clean. Have you ever had anyone who did not like the drawing of them? There was this one guy, I did a story about the Dolphin Club. It's in the book, uh-huh. in the Meanwhile book. That's the, the like swimming club in San Francisco Bay. Yeah, where yeah. The, all the... Um, a lot of old people go in and like nobody wears wetsuits and they go swimming and they just wear like little red speedo hats and goggles. It's amazing. Um, and there's this one guy uh, and there's a portrait of him in the book and he has a handlebar mustache and a little um, cap on. And it's so obvious who this guy is at the club. Um, and I, I think it's a pretty good drawing. I think it looks like him. And so then I saw him a little while later and I think I gave him a copy of the book and he said, you know, thank you. It was really nice that you drew me. It looks nothing like me. But thank you very much. That was really nice. And I'm like, oh, sorry. Like, I, he clearly was not very happy with it. Uh-huh. So, but mostly people are, I, I, it seems like they're they're happy with their portraits. They're not abstract. I'm not good with art, uh, describing art. But they're not abstract, but they're like, they're not 
purely realistic depictions like they're meant to be they're like stylized in yeah. some way right yeah i mean there's ones that the um the the portraits are more I mean, they're definitely supposed to look like the person. So I draw really fast, like I said, from life and paint those. And that is supposed to just kind of suggest like a moment and who the not who the person is, but more like the context of what they're doing. And uh-huh. um, and then the portraits are really about like looking at that, that specific like really person. really capturing that person. Yeah, yeah. So I really hope even if it doesn't look exactly like them, I hope that it really feels like them. Well, along those lines, one thing I wanted to ask you, this is maybe a little inside baseball, uh, but... You did this tattoo book with Isaac Fitzgerald, who's now the book's editor at uh, BuzzFeed. But I was looking back at, you did a series on bartenders in the mission. Yeah. And one of them is him. Is that right? Yeah. 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 When he was a bartender at uh, Zeitgeist in the mission. He was my guide. for the. So for a lot of these stories, I have kind of like one person who will... Uh, be my guide and uh-huh. introduce me to other people. It's like a starting point. And he was my starting point for the bars um, because he was a bartender at Zeitgeist for a long time. And also he's a frequenter of bars. <laughs> he's very good at bars. And so he uh, knows everybody in that scene. And he took me, I think we went to four main bars and introduced me to a bunch of people. Uh, and yeah, the story is about like the life of, you know, the the bars and the mission, the yeah. bartenders and the mission, the the culture and the social circles there and he definitely deserved to be one of the featured dudes <laughs> and then uh bartender your bartender portrait becomes your co-author yeah so, like, yeah who, who knows like out of the tattoo book well the Isaac was also he was also the managing editor at the rumpus right yeah right so he yeah so Isaac Isaac and I are long long time collaborators he's a good friend and partner in crime yeah yeah so we talked a little bit about like you having a moment so to speak but in general, do you feel like uh, this work is having a wider moment? We'll just use that same terminology. But we had talked about like Roz Chast being nominated for the National Book Award. and Ooh, yeah. yeah. And, and Alison Bechdel and the MacArthur Prize. Right, oh exactly. Like is this, do you feel like this kind of storytelling is being elevated to the a level equal with writing in a way it hasn't in the past? Or has that always been true and I just haven't paid attention to it? Like where do you feel like it fits in sort of like the landscape of creative culture. I don't know if it's going to be elevated to the same level as writing. I think it's a different beast entirely, but I do think it's um, coming back. I don't think it's like coming out of nowhere. Like there's this whole history of illustrated journalism and graphic journalism Mm -hmm. that people kind of have forgotten about. Like before the camera, there were these illustrated newspapers in the 1800s. Like there was entire newspapers that were dedicated to illustrations and people were going out into the field like doing reporting on the Civil War and stuff, right? And they would be drawing in the field and then they'd bring them back. They'd make plates out of those and they'd run those, you know, in the newspaper. And that's how people were getting uh, their firsthand, you know, quote unquote firsthand experience is because they're looking at this hand-drawn image that somebody made who was standing right there on the battlefield, uh-huh. right? And so then photography came along and then people were like, oh, well, that's more objective and all of that. But that's a bunch of bullshit. Excuse my language. Photography had like it's kind of uh, the, you know, golden age of photojournalism and all that. And when people thought that it was like the end all be all. Yeah. But then I feel like people really soon, like in the same sentence, started realizing, oh, like, these photographers are making decisions. They're leaving stuff out of the photograph. And, oh, where there's this whole thing called Photoshop that was invented, right? And digital. And <laughs> that now really sudden, highlighted the sort of artificiality of the reality that's Totally. Yeah. And now we like, I think that people kind of started accepting that, like that that is par for the course. And then now with everything being like all the um, photography being totally democratized and like the, the news, like that everybody's taking pictures with their smartphones and stuff. The whole idea of like having one photograph in the paper that's objective that tells the story is kind of blown out of the water. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that now is getting people more interested in like subjective storytelling that people actually really appreciate that you can see, oh, that kind of like this is a story that Evan did, you know, because he went and he spent this time. And you know what? I trust Evan. Therefore, I'm going to trust the story. So Mm -hmm. the like first like the accent is on the storyteller and the trust in the storyteller and then the story. And so because of that, I think that people are starting to be much more open to having um, illustrated journalism or graphic, 
you know, comics, journalism and stuff as a way of getting actual like real information. Oh, that's fascinating. And up until now, like memoir has like Alison Bechdel, who's absolutely, I mean, amazing. And memoir, I think, is also having a, a this an interesting moment, I guess, yeah. you know, and comics memoirs are like a whole other thing, too, at the same time. So it seems to me like there's this interesting circumstance where there's a whole bunch of worlds coming together and there's like a huge interest in illustration. And one other thing, I'm just going to babble for one second, say that I think it's so cool. We're getting so much information right now with all the just nonstop with the Twitter and the Tumblr and the Instagram and the whatever. We're getting so much so fast of all of these digital kind of based, you know, images, GIFs and all that. That when you see something that was created by hand, like you see that somebody actually drew something, I think that you see like, oh, it took somebody time to do that. And it took um, energy and uh, some kind of like care. And so we treat it in the same way. Like we actually slow down to the pace of the person drawing. And I think that that provides a real break in this like crazy rapidness that we're all involved in constantly. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like it's also, it's very suited to like looking at things on the web in a certain way. Like when you've done, meanwhile, in San Francisco, f- stuff for the Rumpus or the the Tumblr for uh, for pen and ink where yeah. you have all the stories. Like that's what people kind of want to do. They want to scroll, but the reading is like pretty light. Like yeah. you're sort of like looking at images and scrolling. It kind of like, it suits naturally what a lot of people like to do online as opposed to like having to read like a dense what we try to make them do, which is read like 10,000 words. I, well, I agree. I think that's why it's very, like everything's kind of shifting over to the visual. You know, it seems like that's a drive for better or for worse, like a really big driver right now. And so an integration of text and visual seems to be uh, really important. I was told, I asked someone like, what should I ask her who knows you? And they were like, be sure that you ask her about death. Oh, John Muellen. <laughs> You're going to give away chicken salad and death? You could give me more information than that. So, Wow. I Just for my own sake, what about death? Can I just pause for a second and say that you're like, hold on, I have one more quick question for you. What do you think about death? Yeah, it's a classic interviewer <laughs> technique, actually. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I can tell you what I guess he's referring to. Uh, so my... Um, my aunt passed away recently, and we were pretty close in the later stages of her life, and she had Parkinson's, so I would visit her um, a lot. And towards the end of her life, I was I was drawing her uh, a bunch. And then in the last kind of 10 days of her life, we were there at her bedside as hospice was there and stuff. And, and I had never been through that before, like yeah. actually going through somebody's dying, which in retrospect is weird because it happens all the time all around us, you know, but uh, it was the first time I'd really been very close with somebody and been very close with the process. And at the same time, I was also drawing her um, in those last 10 days. And for me, drawing is like a way also, in addition to the other stuff I was talking about earlier, like I get, I get to look at things that I might not otherwise feel okay is it's okay to look at. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way for me to really spend some time looking at my aunt and also looking at what it looks like to die. So she passed away, and it was totally a crazy experience for me because it was really sad, but it was also mind-blowing Like to watch what happens to our bodies, to everybody, yeah. you know? And it was incredible to see how the family changed and how important this process was. I mean, it was so important to everybody in the family, the process of her dying. Yes. But we never talked about it. We never talked about it in her entire life that I was aware of, kind of up until we had to. And it got me thinking, like, why don't we talk about this when there's two things that are going to happen? We're going to be born. That's inevitable. And we're going to die. And that's inevitable. And those are the only two things. And we spend so much time, like I'm 38. And so a lot of friends of mine have had babies. Or they're having their second babies. And they're all talking about how to have a baby. Yeah, There's birth, like Birth is well covered. Oh my gosh. Like I, there are so many birthing blogs. It's insane. <laughs> and like ways to be born and a hundred choices to make and checklists and all that. But nobody really talks about death in that same way. And it, that struck me as kind of odd. On the same day that my aunt died, 
uh, there's a place called the Zen Hospice Center in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It's a six-bed hospice. And they got in touch and um, asked if I wanted to participate in an artist residency there. Oh, wow. So I mentioned earlier there's something in January that's coming up that that's all I can think about. And all I can think about these days is death. I'm so excited about it. It sounds kind of strange, but we're trying to work out exactly what it's going to be. Have you looked back at all the drawings? Like, what is the feeling like to like go back through those drawings that captured those moments right at the end? They're really emotional. I think they're really emotional because they bring back the moment that I was drawing. And also because I've never seen drawings like this before. Um, I haven't really seen many pictures of people dying. Mm -hmm. And I think photographs uh, are a little bit objective. And this is a difference between like photographs and drawings. You know, photographs feel very kind of like objectifying the person who's dying and, and the the drawings are hard to look at. They're, you know, she, my aunt looks like she's in kind of pain. But the drawing itself, it's actually I did it in pencil. Usually I draw in pen and watercolor, but for some reason I was doing it in pencil. And the drawings are pretty good. Mm-hmm. So it's this weird tension. And only a couple people have seen them. I don't feel comfortable showing them to anybody else, but the couple people who have seen them, it's been emotional for them too. Yeah. So I wonder what it's going to be like for for me to do more drawings and talk to people, people who aren't necessarily like people I'm very close with and their family. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe it also might be a way that those of us who don't really spend time around death and looking at death, like through drawings, it might be a way that we can approach the subject. Like if we can look at it and say, oh, this is this is what happens. Like this is, this is what it is. This is everything, really. This is what we're all leading up to. Then we can face it for ourselves maybe a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's it. That's, well, that's a real note. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me Taking on. I appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Thanks. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thanks to Wendy for stopping in uh, on her book tour for pen and ink. You should go check it out. It's a really fantastic book. Uh, thanks to our editor, as always, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern, Rachel Mabe. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And of course, our sponsor, Tiny Letter. Thanks to them as well, and we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.